think what happened in the last year is that permanence that I was seeking is me. That's what I discovered. And it's like, oh, your home is your body and you, your soul. Like, that's permanent. And nobody can take that away from you. Welcome to Perennials, a podcast about growing up, getting wise, and trying to live a good life. I'm Victoria Russell. Today, I'm talking to my aunt, Lizzie Finn. She's been listening to the podcast from the beginning, and she and I would often talk about how people in young adulthood might have more in common with people in midlife than they think. Lizzie describes how some of the challenges she's experienced in midlife, including Lyme disease, divorce, and empty nest syndrome, have really pushed her to think about her purpose and what makes her happy and who she wants to be which are all questions I think that a lot of young adults are asking themselves amidst a lot of changes as well. Lizzie talks about the importance of looking forward, you know, continually growing and learning about yourself and the world, and also looking back to heal childhood wounds or past trauma and to be inspired by the child that you used to be. Lizzie describes how amidst a really difficult year, she's also found a renewed sense of passion and purpose and creativity through her work as a screenwriting instructor and a script consultant. You can find her writing on Medium at Lizzie Finn, that's L-I-Z-Z-I-E-F-I-N-N 23.medium.com, where she writes about health, happiness, relationships, midlife, spirituality, TV and film, politics, and psychedelic therapy. I hope you enjoy. Liz, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Victoria. Glad to be here. Finally, after a long time of... I know. You're a longtime listener and a first-time caller. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And mother of one of my former guests, and also she just was on the Perennials Book Club podcast, Olivia Arnold, who is just like the most professional guest I ever have. Like she's so, I mean, she has her background in journalism, so she's very comfortable with interviews, but I'm always just like, you were raised right. (laughs) She comes prepared. (laughs) So thank you for Olivia. Oh, you're welcome. I totally take full credit for her. (laughs) So you and I have talked about before how people in their 20s, might have more in common with people in midlife than people in their 20s might think. Um, It's something I find really interesting. And one of the reasons I feel like you said you've enjoyed listening to perennials, right? I was wondering Mm -hmm. if you could talk a little bit about what your experience is with that. Yeah, my experience is that the 50s are a really interesting, midlife is a really interesting time of life. It's sort of like you spent all this energy and time focused on building this life And then something happens where everything starts to shift, the ground starts to shift underneath you. And all of a sudden, like everything you thought was real or what you thought was true isn't necessarily real or true. And you start having to reinvent yourself. And it's like, so you're really starting from scratch again. You're like scratching your head thinking like, wait, the kids are gone. What am I doing now? Like I spent my whole life, like I spent the last 20 years getting up, making lunches, getting everybody out the door, making sure they were, you know, just constantly in this mode of taking care of the house and the kids and everything and then one day you wake up and that's kind of by the wayside and what I find though is that um, a lot of people in midlife are kind of stuck so they're not necessarily at the point where they're starting to think about what's next or um, 
they're not looking backwards. They're just in the, on this like kind of treadmill of life. And I'm kind of like past that because I had my kids a little bit earlier than my friends. And I'm like connecting to a lot of younger people because I find we have a lot in common. Like they read a lot. They listen to a lot of podcasts. They watch a lot of content on YouTube, on TV, movies. And so I can really plug into that and we can really have these amazing conversations about life and what's going on. And, you know, younger people are really concerned about the environment and politics and just so many different topics that are like intriguing to me and are intriguing to them. And, you know, like when I was in my 30s, 40s and, you know, you fall by the wayside with some of that stuff. You're sort of so looking inward at your own family and trying to get through the day and trying to take care of your life and trying to take care of your kids and trying to pay your bills and trying to make everybody happy that you don't only really have time to think maybe to look outward or even to look inward at your own life, at, at your own thoughts and feelings. So it's a really interesting time because you're really starting to reinvent yourself and think like what's next. Like for 30, for maybe for 20 years, you kind of thought you knew what was next and now you don't. So I do feel like I'm kind of on the same place maybe as like people in their 20s. Like I'm living with my son who's 21 years old and we're sort of like at the same place sometimes of figuring out what's next. What's interesting too about a lot of your experiences is that you didn't choose and most people don't choose to have their world like rocked and rattled, right? So They do not, no. <laughs> you, um, how long ago was it now that you first started experiencing symptoms of... Lyme disease? So it was around um, June of 2013. Mm -hmm. And it was right when we were in the process of moving into a new house and into a very big house. It was a very big move. And, um, and I hurt my back and I was just sort of like, well, okay, I, I need to back off. I'm not as young as I think I am. And I kept, and I started at the doctor and I was getting all these epidurals and nothing was working. It, like it started moving around my body. Then my neck was hurting me. Like I was in pain from head to toe. And the thing is, it took me two years to finally get a diagnosis of Lyme disease. And when I tracked it back, it was like, well, in May of 2013, you know, I'd been feeling good about myself. I, 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 I had written a novel. It took me eight months. And I went away on a girl's weekend to celebrate with my sister um, in May. And we went hiking on the Appalachian Trail because outdoorsy, love being outdoors, all that stuff, nature, trying to take care of myself, trying to be healthy in my 40s. And when I came back, I had in June, I got really sick with the flu, which was kind of odd because it's like, who gets the flu in June? And I mean, I was like dead, like I could not move. Um, it was insane. But, you know, like I said, I, I thought I was getting better. And then like, but it, the backache didn't go away. The headaches didn't go away. Like it just was like, I just was, I was just sick. And I thought it would go away when we moved. It didn't. It got worse. And like, I mean, when I'm talking about my back hurting, I mean, like I couldn't sleep, like probably for a good eight months. Like I was in intense pain and tried all kinds of things. Like, I mean, <laughs> you should have seen my closet. I had like every heating pad, ice pack, spray, cream, you know, going to the chiropractor three times a week, massage, everything, and nothing was working. And not, and they put me on heavy duty painkillers and nothing helped. So eventually we tracked it down to Lyme because the symptoms were all over the place. Like it got to a point where I couldn't get out of bed. I would like get up with the kids, send them off to school, go back to sleep, set my clock for three o'clock, jump out of bed, kind of like make dinner and then just kind of sit on the couch and like not be able to move. And I mean, there was points where like, I would look up, I would look at my stairs and be like, oh, I have to walk upstairs. Like, how am I going to do that? Like, that's going to take a lot of energy and I don't know how to do that. And I mean, my brain stopped functioning. I couldn't write. I couldn't read. I couldn't work. I was sick all the time. And 
this is a really dark period of life and um just trying and trying and trying every day to get better and like no matter what i did like nothing worked and it was i don't know i just don't know how to describe it other than it was just like the worst hell i've ever lived through and i know a lot of people don't make it through lyme because of that it comes to a point where you have to decide whether you want to keep living or not and there were many nights where i couldn't sleep and i was just like why why should i keep living like this is not living and i mean i literally remember one night i basically prayed to god and said and i'm not even that religious you know i'm not somebody who pray i mean i'm spiritual but i don't go to church but i had this come to moment with god and said if my purpose here on earth is over then i'm good let me go because this is not living and this is horrendous but i'm still here so i do feel like there was some purpose in that um coming through that and uh, you know having children really kept me grounded and really kept me fighting and really kept me wanting to be here for them especially as somebody who lost my own father when i was a teenager i understand how traumatic yeah. that can be and so he was really sick for a really long time really sick and so like there was this weird loop where like i was looping it back into mm -hmm. my own childhood being like now i'm the sick parent now i'm the one who mm -hmm. can't function now i'm the one who can't be there for my children so there was like a lot of guilt with that too mm -hmm. and also coming to understand what he was going through you know so like all of those things came to me like it was a very bizarre thing to have grown up with sickness and then be the person in adulthood who is sick although as i later discovered it's not really that crazy because the trauma of my childhood is sort of what i think created this system in my body just collapsing when i got lyme disease it was just overstressed from the trauma of you know 40 years of fight or flight so it's all connected in a way mm -hmm. to say that, you know, like I just was in a really dark place, but I am here today <laughs> in a very much better place. So um, that's really where the story ends on a high note, which is a good thing. And would you say that that was like the beginning of this kind of shift for you into a different stage of life or am I imposing that? <laughs> No, I mean, I think like I started shifting before that for sure, like probably mid 40s where I definitely started to become more spiritual because I was sort of like, you know, it's just a natural way to be like, well, what's next? What's my purpose? I mean, again, when you're raising children, it sort of becomes very easy to be like, this is my purpose. Like, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm here for. And this is what's keeping me here, you know, all those things. But um, but I was, you know, looking ahead and being like, well, what's next for me? Like, I always felt like I was here for a purpose. I always felt like my creativity was something that was sort of like gifted to me, kind of came through me. I don't, you know, I just felt like, well, why am I being, why do I have this gift? I don't know. You know, this thing that just compels me to create. So I did feel that way, but I think like starting that journey before I got sick was important because I think without that faith, I don't think I would have survived. I don't think if I didn't have a purpose, if I didn't feel like, oh, I'm supposed to come out of this and there's supposed to be a reason for this, I think I could have gone a different path. I mean, I know a lot of people either get lost in drugs or alcohol when they have Lyme disease or when they have a chronic illness that there's just no, like, if you wake up every day and you don't feel better, in fact, you actually feel worse, you stop, you start having, losing hope. And once you lose hope, there's just why. Why would you get out of bed if every day's pain? So. I think I had that faith and I had that creativity and I had the, I had these tools 
that even with them made it extremely difficult to, to stay focused. Um, but I think, thank God I was on that path already because I was sort of like, no, I think I'm supposed to stay here and do something with this. In the middle of my Lyme disease, I was going to a lot of workshops on healing and using writing for healing. And one of the things that showed up was um, sort of like pain can get kind of, I started to get the feeling like the pain stuff was kind of stuck. Like my neural, like my neural connections were getting stuck in this pain loop. So like maybe I wasn't even like experiencing inflammation anymore, but my body, my brain just thought I was. So I started trying to retrain my brain and I, that started me down this whole thing of like looking at trauma and how it can impact you in adulthood. So the whole, you know, ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences and growing up with a father who was sick was extremely traumatic. And I only realized it when I was an adult, how traumatic it was for me and how as a super sensitive little girl living in this home that was so magical and creative where there was art and music and books everywhere. And then my father getting sick and not coming home from the hospital for months and then always being afraid that he was going to die my entire childhood. It really created this sense of not being safe. Yeah. So I didn't project myself as anxious. I didn't have panic attacks. We weren't, it was different maybe growing up in the seventies, like we were stronger or something like that. We didn't show our emotions, but I think my body was in fight or flight for my entire life, worrying about the bad thing that was going to happen. And that creates inflammation in your body. It, cortisol just floods your body constantly and it creates inflammation. And so when I, in my twenties, I started like, why, like, why do I have these issues? Like, you know, like I said, it took me longer to, like, I had morning sickness then I had postpartum. Like it just was, it, there were things that were off about my body, which is why I started down a track of nutrition and, you know, supplements and all these things. But there was always some part of it that was off. And the part that was off was that this trauma was not being resolved, you know? And so it was just always in the background and it was just making me sick. And so everything that you piled on top of that, there was just no way to heal. And menopause kicked in on top of Lyme disease, which was just like, all right, what, what the hell is going on? So it was just like brutal, 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 brutal. But I think maybe, and when I say like, I don't really know what created the, the healing. A lot of it was what I was doing for my body, but a lot of it was also what I was doing for my brain and healing this trauma. And I did a lot of work with like, um, meditate beyond meditation. So I started doing neurofeedback like to kind of like get my brain waves like back into like, you know, where they're supposed to be normal, calm. And that really made a huge difference. And that's mm -hmm. when I started to be able to go into restaurants and started to be able to handle noise again. So there's all kinds of things we don't even understand about the brain. Like it's creating these pathways and they just were not helping me. And I was just, like I said, everybody looks at it and attacks it from the physical level of the pain and the symptoms, but I needed to go back further and figure out what, what came first. And you know, what's so funny about that is that so often when we seek help for our mental health, people always approach it from the cognitive level. And actually so often you need healing on a body level and like a heart level, mm -hmm. and it can take people a really long time. I think there's more and more research on it now you know, with like EMDR, the same thing, like something's happening in your brain that you're not even 
you're not consciously doing anything like even talk therapy I think and like CBT which is like so helpful can sometimes only go so far especially when you're dealing with any sort of trauma because there's stuff that's just like in your body that no amount of like thinking can heal it's really interesting using your mind a little bit more for your body using your body more for your mind and like having your heart engaged in all of it I think yeah, you can't separate it out. And like, um, one of the things I was going to talk to you today about is that I have been studying happiness studies. Yeah. And um, that's a huge part of that stu- of those studies, which is that mind and body are connected. And we keep treating it like psychiatry treats the mind and doctors treat the body. But like, really, what you know, that whole adverse childhood, you know, thing shows is that this could happen when you're four years old and it impacts you in your forties and fifties for sure. And they know it. So, but you know, because we're out there in the world and on the outside, we seem pretty normal and happy and successful. And look at me, I've got a house and a car and a job and a family. Like, look at me, I'm doing great, but there's something that's not working and we can't quite figure it out. And for me, I was in therapy on and off for 20 years and I was dealing with a lot of stuff going on, but I never really went back to the stuff with my dad until I got sick and started realizing, oh wait, (laughs) that was pretty horrific what I went through because I'm imagining what my kids might be going through with me sick. So I never really connected that. I mean, went to therapy might've been like, you know, I was one of eight kids and things were tough and we had a lot of responsibility and, you know, you don't get a lot of attention when you're one of eight. So I went into like those kinds of things. Like, how do I raise two children? I don't, you know, all those kind of things. Like, like you said, cognitively, I was trying to figure out how to do things differently, maybe than how I was raised or whatever, or the hardships we had growing up because we grew up in a different era. All those things were like, life was a little bit tougher. But the thing is like, I never really connected it back to my own trauma of being this little girl who watched her father transform overnight from a healthy person to a disabled person and just never really got to know him her entire life and worrying about him dying. So that really, I made that connection one night when I was sick and was like, holy crap, like this is connected here. So yeah, I mean, and you can talk about this stuff to your blue in the face and I would say like, okay, but I know all this. Right. I know all this. Yeah. I know all this. Yeah. It doesn't bring my cortisol levels down. It doesn't stop the inflammation. It doesn't stop all this stuff from flooding my body. I know how to meditate. I know how to relax. It still wasn't disrupting those things because they were going on for so long. Yes. And Lyme itself created a lot of trauma. Like I'm like I still have post-traumatic stress from being sick with an invisible illness in this society and being treated the way I was treated um, by people. So, you know, kind of feeling isolated and alone, having to fight through this and people not really believing me, people not really seeming like they cared. I know people cared, but like they didn't really have, they didn't really know how to deal with it. So there's a lot of trauma from that too, because I really felt like I was on my own for a long time. Yes. And not to pile it on, but um, just as you were starting to feel better, that's when you experienced the start of your divorce, right? Your midlife separation. So you got kind of hit with like, as soon as you were physically starting to feel better, then that happened. So 
another rug pulled out, right? And an, an instance of, oh, I thought life was going to look like this. I thought it would go this way. And now, um, and I would imagine that's pretty traumatic too. And also having lost your dad, because your dad did die when you were 16. Yeah, a week before my 17th birthday. Yeah, yeah. It's, been a, it's been a rough year for me because there is trauma with that because I was sort of blindsided. Not in that I thought my life was perfect. I knew all of those things were going on and they were creating stress undercurrents in my marriage. But I also didn't know it was over until it was over. So, yeah, I mean, I have literally just started being able to sleep through the night where I'm not waking up with trauma from that, which was like very much reminiscent of my father leaving to go to the hospital and not coming home. So I had that whole abandonment issue going, which is like, just tell me where you're going. Just tell me if you're coming back. Like, I don't think that's asking too much. Um, So that was extremely difficult. It sort of felt like I hit rock bottom for sure. Now, the only good thing is I was feeling better. So my brain was like, but you're alive and you feel good. Like, that was like the upside of it, which was sort of like I was in such a high where I was like, what's next? Well, I can do anything. I could do it. I mean, I can literally do anything. I could eat a grilled cheese sandwich. Can you imagine if I could eat a grilled cheese sandwich? Like every, it was like literally like being Brent, like reborn. So to have that shift happen at the same time, it's really hard. It's really painful. I've been grieving tremendously. And at the same time, I've been rebuilding my life and I, I know enough to know, like, I think I'm where I'm supposed to be. So I can, it's like, there's two sides of my brain where I can say like, why did that happen? How did that happen? How could this happen to me? At the same time, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be okay. Like, I totally needed all of this stuff to be taken away. My ability to create and write and work my friendships that no longer serve me because people the people who weren't there for me when I needed them you know it's sort of like everything was pulled out from underneath me and I was able to start building up with just with the things that really matter to me Mm. yeah it's like um like you said I can imagine when you're in that kind of autopilot of raising your kids and you're so busy and you think you just know exactly, you have all these like markers of your identity that are like, well, I have this and this and this and this. And now you're at a point where it's like, okay, like, who are you and what are you doing here? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Which anyone could tap into at any time, but we just, you know, most, most people don't unless forced, right? Understandably. (laughs) Um, (laughs) because at the end of the day, like, yeah, things, I I feel like it's so tricky to like navigate that line of like, you know, um, finding meaning in your suffering without thinking that suffering inherently has meaning, you know, or having to, you know, and, um, understanding that like things are never, things are always changing and not, and also like being able to find some sort of stability for yourself that something inside yourself that that doesn't like shake or change so much right like yeah 
for sure. If you were just constantly walking around going, anything can change at any moment, everything can be ripped away from me. Like you wouldn't be able to function. Right. For sure. I mean, that's the part of like, you know, the Buddhist text, right. Which is like, everything is impermanent. Stop being attached to things and understand that suffering is part of life. And then you got it. Right. But we don't really like suffering. Like yeah. it's not fun. We don't like change and we don't like not knowing what's next, even though we need excitement and all that stuff. But I think what happened in the last year is that permanence that I was seeking is me. Yes. That's what I discovered. Like I kept saying like my home is my home, but that was taken from me. And I was like, well, my home was really my children and my husband, but wait, they're grown and he's gone. So that's taken from me. So where is my home? And it's like, oh, your home is your body and you, yeah. your soul. Like that's permanent and nobody can take that away from you. So that's the discovery I made over the last year. As hard as it was and as much as I didn't want to go through that. And I think this last year has just been me like really being like, oh, I actually know what my values are now. I actually know who I am. And I actually know that's my, so my place of permanence. So instead of always worrying about, are the kids happy? Is my husband happy? And again, and always being tuned into them too. Like that's the other thing people don't understand about being a mother. Your brain is constantly tuned into the other people going, oh my God, they're sad. Oh my God, they're unhappy. Oh my God, they need this. Oh my God, oh my God. So like, you're in this constant state of like anxiety almost over them mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to keep them happy and well. Now, nobody asks us to do that. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of what kicks in and we serve that purpose for a long time, but it wears us down. Um, so I think like spending time on my own for the first time, you know, at four, 52 years old being like, well, okay, like who am I if I'm not taking care of everybody else and putting their needs first and what are my values? But beyond that, like, who am I? And just discovering that is really powerful because it's like, I can't be shaken now. Like, honestly, I really can't. And I'm, I'm part of it's menopause. I coming through menopause is great because I'm like, it's just a different level of peace and serenity. Mm. Even like coming through the pandemic and being like, oh, wow, like maybe a year ago, I couldn't have done this or two years ago or five years ago. But right now I've got this. And that is coming from knowing this permanent place maybe it's the soul if whatever you want to call it the soul the spirit it's sort of like oh that is really rock steady for me right now and all this other stuff is challenging and struggles but that's life and i'll figure it out so that's really been huge for me now again when you're going through it nobody wants to hear somebody say oh someday you'll be you'll be glad this happened because you will have learned so much and it's like screw you universe I yeah. want to learn easy things. <laughs> yeah. And also like when you're in it, you don't know if you are going to get through it. You don't. I mean, hopefully you do, but some people also have battles that they don't quote unquote win. I mean, exactly. and um, yeah, I mean, and it's interesting what you're saying about, I think I can, even though I'm not a mother, there's something about me. I don't know if it's just because I'm very sensitive, um, but like as a kid growing up with, you know, the second oldest of five, I always just gravitated towards being very nurturing and like with my siblings, with cousins, you know, whoever I would go to Barnes and Noble and like, I'd be sitting in the kids section, you know, I'd be like 10 or something. And I'd be like watching one of my younger siblings in the kids section and little children would come up and like ask me to read to them. You know, I just like, <laughs> I just, I don't know, 
But I now at 29, like I'm not married. I don't have kids and I'm not in a rush because I really felt like I did really grow up like so internalizing everyone else's feelings and just really wanting to take care of like everyone around me and um, finding it really hard to find my own wants and needs and desires when I'm so constantly, like you said, just constantly picking up on everything, Mm -hmm. Um, everything going on with the people close to me that I love. And um, so I can relate to that on a level. I'm sure it's like totally next level as a mother. Um, but on a certain level, I can relate. It's not like somebody tells you, like, you have to give up everything. And ma- I mean, like, I'm like, I'm a modern woman. I have my own life. I went to college. I'm not going to give up myself in this marriage. But there's something that happens because if you tend to be a natural caretaker, uh, you know, that's just the feminine qualities that we have. And I think men glom onto that because they aren't taught to nurture that side of themselves. So someone has to pick up the slack in the family and someone has to pick up the slack for them too, because they're not willing to do it for themselves. And before you know it, you're doing all of that mental, emotional, spiritual labor, and it takes a toll. Mm -hmm. And then, especially when you're not receiving any of it back. And it, you know, I think it did impact my health and my mental health, you know, um, always trying to have two sides of me, like, well, I want to nurture my own ambitions, but I want to nurture this family too. And just being kind of pulled back and forth. And I don't think men have that same right. impulse. They don't have to worry about that. And women do. And I think like, we still haven't really figured out a way to, yeah, you know, deal with that in this world, how we can nurture our own ambitions and our families and not constantly pay the price. I think it's really difficult to live with other people, whether it's yeah. a partner, a spouse, so true, of kids, whatever, it, or even with work and all this stuff. Like, it's you know, it's sort of like I know you've gone to like these retreats and these silent retreats, and you like you go there and you feel so nourished and protected and safe, but then you have to go back out into yes. the world, and it's like immediately it's like ah, like you yeah. know, you're just like attacked by everybody else's like energies and their needs and their wants and their discordant whatever thought patterns. I need to decompress. Oh yeah, I mean that's definitely forefront of my mind as my boyfriend and I are talking about moving in together. And I'm like, I value relationships so much and it's so important to me. And I value that space and alone time and my little nervous system that gets overwhelmed so easily, you know? So uh, yeah. And even when I think farther in the future, like, "Hmm, do I want to have kids? Like, yeah, it's hard when you really value that space. So it's just questions. Well, I think it's like, I think because my father was a monk, your grandfather was a monk, yeah. um, that like, I had this little piece of me that there's like this little piece of a monk in me. Yeah. And it's crazy because I just spent the last 30 years with somebody. I didn't spend any time alone taking care of other people. And now I'm like, but well, maybe I'm supposed to be alone. But I think for this season that I'm right. in right now, right. I'm supposed to be alone. And I'm not saying I'm going to be alone forever, but it's just sort of like that little piece of the monk is like very happy right now. Yes. <laughs> Yes. I actually have been trying to, because sometimes I'm like, oh, it's so hard to be alone all the time. Like I I just have these two dueling parts of me, like during COVID, especially it's like, because it's a different type of aloneness when you're like, hmm, I haven't been in a house with another person or been within six feet of another person or been touched or hugged by another person in months. 
um, that's a whole other level of aloneness. And, and sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm so alone. I'm so sad. And then I'm like, oh, I want to be alone. Like, I, it's so confusing. <laughs> but, but sometimes, but recently I've been like, you know what? Cause my brain, what you just said about, you know, being in a season of life. Like, I think that's something that does, that has been clicking for me more as I get older is like, when I was younger, I always thought this is forever, like whatever mm-hmm. it is. And just recently I've been like, Oh, I wonder if I can really be present with this season that I'm in right now of I'm living alone. I have a lot of time and space and quiet and can I like sink into it and enjoy it. And it reminds me of, um, you know, I'm, I've been reading Anne of Green Gables for the book club podcast. And she is just this very wise little spirit of a child. <laughs> and there's this one part in the book where she says, you know, I think she's 13 or 14. And she's like, I think this might be my last summer as a little girl. So I'm just going to believe in fairies, like with all my heart and, and just play in the woods. And, and she's like, so present with like understanding that she should just soak this and be present in it. It's just so hard to do when you're afraid of loss or you're afraid of being stuck or whatever, you know, it, the case may be to actually be present and be like, can I just sink into the season and enjoy it for what it is? Yeah. A part of my epiphany when I was sick and part of when I started um, trying to like trace back to where my trauma was, I just remember like just the joy of being a child um, and that being disrupted was what really, it was difficult for me. So I believe that that childhood summer should never be over. We should always believe in fairies and we should always be dancing and joyful and believing in magic. And that's really like huge to me because it's like, who told me I had to grow up? And like you said, be responsible and take care of other people from the time we were children. And again, sometimes that happens in big families, you become very responsible. But I, you know, it's like, I've been nurturing this childlike side of myself. And, you know, like this summer, like, I got a tube and I went down to the beach and sat in a tube. Like, I don't care if people think it looks ridiculous for a middle-aged woman to be in a tube. I'm going to float in the water and have fun, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's kind of things like that where it's like just trying to recapture some of that spirit that, and having kids was a really great way to do that. Like Mm -hmm. I was very playful with my kids and I enjoyed taking them to like the amusement parks and the water slides and the beach. And that kept me very playful. So there was like a, you know, when they started getting to high school, middle school, you're sort of like, wait, when, when, who's, where's my play date? Where did you go? So that's when I started realizing like, well, can I still play? Can I still dance and play music and sing and do create, you know, go down to the beach and build a sandcastle? So I really believe that's been part of my healing too, which is like, you don't have to, you can grow up and I believe you can be mature, but you can still be playful and you can still have that childlike curiosity and wonder. And that's, and creativity and openness because those things are really important those are the things we don't want to lose we don't we want to like especially in middle age like people get really stuck in a rut like i do everything the same way i can't change it has to be like this and i'm very much like no it doesn't it ha- doesn't have to be like this i can totally change things i can totally let things go mm-hmm. and have some fun so that's been really like part of my happiness you know kind of um focus over the last couple of years as well. Wasn't as easy to do when I was sick. It's much yeah. easier now. <laughs> I do love that idea of tapping into the different parts of yourself. Like I've really been thinking about that a lot too and trying to do that intentionally, like not just the little child in you. And like you can touch base with the little child 
the one that that experienced trauma and try to like offer some healing, but then also the really happy little child, like you're saying, and then even like the teenager in you that's really creative and maybe a little bit more questioning and wants that privacy and um, maybe a little bit of a wild side, whatever. And then your inner adult or your inner mother, your inner father, your inner wise old woman, you know, like being able to, as you get older, like tap into those different parts and play with them and realize that, yeah, you do have all these different parts and they're all available to you. Yeah. There's like wisdom at all those different ages, like what you're saying. And like, we forget that. And like, we forget that there's a reason, like, I know, like, you know, when my, a lot of my friends still have teenagers or college age kids, and there's all this stuff, like, they'll be like, oh, my teenagers are driving me crazy. And I'm like, you know what, they're supposed to drive you crazy. And Mm -hmm. it's awesome. Like, you know, like, I know it's really hard again, when you're going through it, because your baby suddenly turn on you, and they start rebelling, and they don't want to be around you. But it's sort of like, well, it's natural. And this is what they're supposed to be doing. And thank God they're going through these stages. So I always looked at it like that. And I always was like, you know, good for them. (laughs) Like, good for them for pushing back and showing their own mind. And like, there's a wisdom in that, like that they know to ask for what they want. And I think, you know, again, being raised in a different generation and with the Catholic Church and some other things going on, which was like, be the good girl don't question, don't rebel. It's like, yeah, it's taken me a long time to rebel and yes. to sit in the writing groups and be like, I don't want to be the good girl. Okay. Now that doesn't mean I'm going to be obnoxious, mean, or hurt people. It means I don't have to perform mm-hmm. and I don't have to limit myself and keep myself small. I can do what things, even if it makes you uncomfortable and I can be myself. So that's what really, when it comes to being the good girl, cause I mean, of course, I want to be good out in the world, but I'm saying this idea that like we have to be timid, meek, quiet, non-disruptive. It's like, no, we're going to disrupt things. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're going to stand up for things. So I think like, yeah, there's so much wisdom. And I found that I always, I went through um, Martha Beck's like writing Mm. program at one point. And one of the prompts she does is she gave was like, what was one of your teachers in life? And it's sort of one of those things, like, what is the struggle that taught you the most? And my whole thing was like, my children were my teachers. Every step along the way, I was like, oh, okay, this is what's supposed to be happening at this age. Like I sort of was like one step behind them. Like they kind of like said, this is what I need. They weren't saying that, but like through their actions or behaviors. And I was like, oh, okay let me keep up. We're, we're shifting over here now. And I just realized that people can shift. Now, obviously, the neural pathways are different when you're young. But I've started to see why it's really important to allow that to happen. Because if it doesn't happen, you get people in middle age who never attain that wisdom in those different age groups. And they're still like, you know, stuck in these loops. And they just get stuck emotionally. They don't mature emotionally. And it's really, really frustrating to be around people like that. Like if you're so afraid of those parts, like say you're so afraid of that, the adolescent, like the wildness or the rebellion or the pushing back or the asserting boundaries or whatever, that part actually takes over you and starts making the decisions for you because it like comes out in ways that you're not in control of. I think, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's like anything like the this whole idea that you can ignore parts of yourself like it doesn't work yeah. you know i think brené brown right says something about that right like the parts that you ignore like if you ignore the pain you're gonna ignore the joy too like mm -hmm. so what you're saying is a lot of times we are trying to ignore that hurt child but like same thing i came to that revelation i was like but i've been ignoring the happy lizzie who used to run on the beach yeah. barefoot like i have not let her play yeah because she was hurt so young and I just tucked her away, but she wants to climb out now. And mm -hmm. I, I wrote about that in Martha Banks class too, which was sort of like, I rescued my little child self, you know, and I brought her over the wall and rescued her and brought her back into my life. So you're right. And I think like what I'm seeing is a lot of people outwardly are told be good, do the right thing, mature, but they aren't allowed to go through the steps. And then this is why in middle age, we have people going through a second adolescence where they're imploding their lives and saying, oh, it's me time now. I need to get to be selfish. I never got to do what I wanted. And it's like, it's like they sound like an adolescent. Right. I am in me time. But I can tell you that like, I woke up the day my daughter went to, or my son went to college and I went, me time's overrated. <laughs> like, I don't know what <laughs> yeah. to do with me time. Like, what? I only need like this little slice of me time. I've been so content with little this little slice. Like, what, what am I supposed to do with the whole pie? But now I totally embrace that I got to take care of myself first because that's who I, you know, it's me first. But mostly I'm doing that so that I can be out in the world as a servant to something greater than myself. You know, so it's like, if I don't take care of myself, then I can't do the things I want to do. Because again, like if we integrate those pieces and feel good about being the caretaker or the provider or the father or the mother or whatever it is, the, I mean, then, like you said, we don't have to kind of like rebel against them. Right. We can be like, oh, okay, this is a part of me, but it's not the only part of me because exactly. I'm honoring all these other things. Exactly. Yeah. And I, it's interesting. I feel like all of this must really come out in your creativity, right? Like, I would imagine that being able to draw on different parts is important to your creative life. And you're in such an interesting phase in that, in your creative work now, I would just love to hear you talk a little bit about what you've got going on creatively. Yeah. I mean, it's actually kind of, I feel like it's a Renaissance. I'm like having my own Renaissance rebirth and it truly is that. And part of it is because, you know, for years I was lucky to be able to stay home financially had stability so I could work on all of these interesting creative projects, but I never could really commit to it completely because I had to carve out a little piece of the pie and I was primarily the, the you know, the caretaker, the stay at home parent who's always on call and I made choices, you know, like I wasn't going out to LA for six months like other people. I made choices and, you know, it just meant like, you know, had to look for things smaller or closer to home. Um, things that were like personally fulfilling, but not hugely financially career wise, you know, weren't going to go anywhere. Now, coming out of being sick and me saying like, what the hell am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? You know, I'm thinking like, I want to go back to college, maybe get maybe study psychology. I'm very interested in positive psychology. And I did spend the last 10 months studying happiness studies. And I definitely am going to integrate that into part of my life. But what, as a result of that, all this creativity started flowing. And I was, I was, I was right, taking classes at this organization called Project Right Now and in a class called Get Unstuck. And I was in there for two years when my brain was barely functioning. And I just would go in there on Fridays just to eke out a little bit of creativity to feel like I was like, you know, kind of priming the pump, keeping some kind of like something flowing. It wasn't much. It was like a little 
like a little drizzle. But all of a sudden, I came out of that and I was like, hey, I really would like to teach like some restorative writing because that's what kind of helped me, you know, heal. And they were like, sure. So I started like designing classes around that and they kind of really didn't take off. So I'm like, well, what else can I teach? Screenwriting. It's what I know. It's what I love. But I kind of fell away from screenwriting because it's really competitive. The business is sometimes really horrendous. I, you know, everybody says you have to be out in LA. I got involved with a bunch of crooks 10 years ago, all kinds of crazy con men. So I was sort of like, I'm done with that. But I started teaching screenwriting and it, and it just, it's like my love for it just all of a sudden just created so much flow. Like I enjoy teaching it so much. I enjoy mentoring people and coaching them. And I was able to teach, like go from one class to being like, with less than 10 months, creating an entire screenwriting academy with multiple classes and workshops and year long programs. So like, all of a sudden, I'm like, how is this happening? And part of it was like, being within this organization for two years that I was just really in alignment with, like, you can't force this, I've joined other writing organizations, and it wasn't the right fit. But for whatever reason, we are a good fit. But you know, like, just because you're given a chance to do something, you still have to go and do the work. And again, like, I'm thinking like, can I do this? Can I even teach one class? Like six months ago, my brain wasn't even functioning, but I'm just like going with it. I'm just saying yes. Like if it feels good, I'm saying yes. Like if it's like, all right, this like something's telling me just ask or just put this forward. The more I work, the more I teach, the more I'm doing plugged into these things that make me feel really good and energize me it's like the more I'm, the more it's like growing. And it seems like, you know, like it would be the opposite. You're working too hard. You're going to run yourself down. But it turns out like when you really enjoy what you're doing and when it's feeding your purpose and your passion and your creativity, it just is like, I don't even know how to explain it. It's just like, it's like, a, it's like magic. So that's like kind of where I am. So like, again, I sometimes have to like, you know, think like, wait, what am I talking about? Like, I'm still grieving. I'm still coming out of like the worst six years of my life, but like, I'm also here on top of the mountain. Something that I also find really interesting about that is that, and something I can kind of relate to is sometimes I feel like when we're so focused on healing and like everything is about healing, it doesn't like, it's really important to focus on healing, but it's also really important to focus on things that aren't explicitly about quote unquote healing. Like, like the restorative writing course, I'm sure would be a wonderful course. And there's something about like screenwriting, which is not explicitly about healing. For me, it might be like doing the spinoff book club podcast, like reading Anne of Green Gables and talking about the book and going back to a first love of mine, which is reading and talking about books or learning to play guitar now, like being able to focus on things that are not, um, do you, do you get what I'm saying? Like yeah, how they do what I was going to say is because like with restorative writing, I'm thinking like, well, because now I've gone through this really terrible thing. I feel like my purpose is to help other people heal. Mm -hmm. I'm like, so I think this is the route I'm supposed to do it, but maybe, but then all of a sudden I'm like, but maybe my purpose or maybe my purpose is to show other people when I'm in my passion, right? That's where all of a sudden I'm in flow and I'm actually, even if I'm feeling sick, I'm still writing. Like last week I didn't feel great and I still wrote because I was like, awesome, I'm doing this. Or I still taught. 
So it's like, all of a sudden it's like, oh, the best thing I can do to be a guide or mental mentor or role model for other people is to do what I love and to show them that this is actually how you feel most in your power or like you're reaching your potential. Like don't try so hard to make a difference or to heal others. Do what is your your own soul is speaking for you to do because there are plenty of people who are psychiatrists or teaching those kinds of things and maybe they're better suited for it my thing is i know my healing is coming through my writing i know the screenplay is going to deal with a lot of these issues but it's going to be done in a fun way and for me it's important for me again to have fun so screenwriting is fun Mm -hmm. teaching about screenwriting is fun sometimes we sit and we're reading these screenplays over the internet and i'm like i can't believe this is my life i can't believe we just read out loud and uh, we're in adults you know so that to me fits in again it's in my kind of like what's important for me at this stage of my life I need to have fun. I need to enjoy it. I need to feel like it's in my purpose and my passion. I need to feel like it is healing and it's healing to me when it's creating energy rather than sapping my energy. So yeah. And like when you see it like leading to other things naturally and organically, you just know it's meant to be. And then you also know like, oh, this is what I can do. Like, this is my little passion. Nobody else can quite do this. Right. I'm going to pick this one, like you're, you know, the book that you want to share or the screenplay that I want to share. This is our specific little obsession. And that's where we find our community too, because there happens to be a lot of people out there who share our little obsessions and hopefully we're just inspiring them. And that's what I think you were trying to say. Yes. No, that's exactly (laughs) it. It's like, we have such a wellness and healing culture. There's, there's so much like not even just a culture, like a, like industry, um, right now. And like all of it is important, but it's just a part of us and a part of our story. It's not the whole story. Like you heal so that you can do that screenwriting. Right. Right. You know? Yeah. And, like um, I don't want healing to, and healing was my job 24 hours a right. day for six years. Like, right. and it was not fun. And so I'm right. like, I want to think of, I want to use my mental capabilities or my, you know, all of my energy around something that's going to keep me, my energy like growing. Yeah. And I think like, you know, I read a lot of screenplays where people, the same thing. Well, I think that this is going to make a difference. I want to like, you know, it's really important topic. And those are the screenplays that are preachy and nobody gets mm-hmm. anything from them. So I think, yeah, we can, I mean, we can really entertain each other, but also teach and I mean, most importantly with screenplays, what I try to tell my students is you want people to feel something. It's the most important thing you can get out of a screenplay. So we try to be intellectual. We try to be witty. We try to get our point across. But at the end of the day, we really want to move people. So I think that's a pretty good job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I enjoy thinking like if I made somebody think or cry or laugh, like that's a pretty good job. So I feel like, yeah, I don't need to like, I don't need to put it like, we don't need to compare, like, but I'm not a doctor and I'm not saving mm-hmm. lives and I'm not, you know, healing people. But I think, like, we can heal this world a lot through better stories, yeah. <laughs> better sharing our stories and, you know, we're, and being, like, honest, authentic and genuine in those stories. Yeah, it's like um, it's like with poetry. Like I write poetry. I read a lot of poetry. I work for a poetry festival. And we always talk about how, like, the universal is in the particular. So when a poet writes an incredibly particular poem about their very specific experience, that's when 
you connect to it the most actually. Like you think, oh, I should write so generally so everyone can relate. No, it's actually because what you just said, if you make someone feel something, if you tell, even if someone's playing with facts in a poem, but they're telling a truth that's greater than the literal truth and making you feel something, then you've done your job. <laughs> For sure. And so like I teach adults and I teach teens. And the really interesting thing about teenagers or kids right now is they have access to some of the best stories and in the world. Like, again, I always left. So I'm like, you guys don't know what we grew up with. Like we grew up with like terrible TV and it was mm -hmm. like crappy writing. There was like, it was all plot. There was no story. There was no character development. There was no theme. But the kids nowadays, when I sit down, they go, what is the story about? Really? What is the character? And like, they always get right to the character's trauma. They get right to the idea, like what the arc is and where the theme is. And like, I have a, harder time teaching the adults because we weren't raised in that kind of storytelling mm -hmm. but you know like there's so much content right now between like podcasts and you know everything that these kids are just natural storytellers so they get it and I'm like sitting there going to these adult you know screenwriters like what is it you're trying to say I don't know I'm telling a comedy it's like no like don't spend all this time unless you have something to communicate like a universal truth but then tell it through your particular like the particular story and it's really like a struggle still to get to them that is like that what you said the particular with the universal whereas the kids seem to get it because mm. i'm telling you like some of the best writing right now is these superhero movies <laughs> and i know people look at that and say like oh it's just garbage but it's not because it's so many great screenwriters there's there's no nobody's writing dramas because hollywood isn't buying them so the best dramas are being written in these superhero movies and they're basically about trauma. Almost all of them are about trauma and resilience. And I think it's fantastic because these kids are learning the language of trauma and resilience from these movies and these TV shows that I think a lot of adults are looking at and saying, what is this garbage they're watching? And it's really quite fantastic, a lot of these stories. And I love how so often the superheroes, like they have powers that they don't really know what to do with in the beginning or they can cause harm or they can help. And I often think about with our own, you know, for people like us who struggle with anxiety and depression, who are super sensitive, it's like there are superpowers in there, but you have to train your mind. And those superheroes always go through training and learn how to harness the power of those things that they have. Um, and I always love kind of connecting to that. Yeah, it really resonates with the teenagers and we, and my, um, summer camp like we started our own like characters and superhero characters and it was fantastic i mean they had all psychological backstories for these characters mm -hmm. and i'm saying to you like i think that the younger generation is way more in tune to their feelings and i understand like i mean it's horrible the levels of anxiety and depression but at least they speak this language of trauma that i'm that's what goes back to what we started with this whole discussion which is like mm -hmm. i can talk to teenagers and people in their 20s about things like trauma you try to talk to somebody in their 50s about trauma and they're sort of like what are yeah. you talking about that was their childhood let it go build a bridge get over it i don't think about that i don't talk about that they have just repressed it for so long yeah and i don't know maybe you know i don't know i don't know maybe they have to hit the rock bottom too before they go there or maybe they never will but there's definitely it's easier to talk to teenagers about this stuff mm. and it's in their content that they're watching in their everyday entertainment and it is normalizing it. So um, it's a good thing. It's starting conversations and it's helping kids see them, you know, that 
where these difficulties lie. But I wish more, um, it's just harder to get the older brains yes. <laughs> to think that way. Well, as we wrap up, I'm curious to know, is there any message you would, I, I, I think the whole conversation speaks to this, but is there anything in particular, whether it's from your happiness studies program, just from your experience, anything you would want to leave people with? Your curiosity and your openness are probably the most important things you can have staying adaptable and flexible and open to growing and learning this and making mistakes like it's so important to be open to that because this idea that we have to be perfect that we don't make mistakes that we're good uh it shuts down a lot of people and i think there's a, an opportunity for people younger people to not fall into that rut to keep those now that we know see the science shows now that we keep making new neural pathways that we can change our brain keep that brain young keep being open and curious and keep exploring and every mistake you make is just a lesson it's just it's nothing's permanent other than death <laughs> you know there's not too many things that are permanent and even when i felt sick and i felt permanent it wasn't right so as long as we can come through these phases and realize what phase we're in and be okay with making mistakes and learning lessons then it's really a better way to approach life i say to my own kids like it doesn't matter to me whether you achieve certain career goals or have a big house or get married and have kids like all those things that you're told that you're supposed to want because again in happiness studies we find out those things don't actually make you happy mm. in the long term they give you a little boost what you really have to do is be happy with yourself happiness is an inside job so the way you're happy with yourself is to just keep growing learning about yourself and really focusing in on that I, you know i can't stress that enough now this is not permission to be selfish self-absorbed and narcissistic at all this is focusing on yourself so that you're constantly growing and adapting and not getting stuck so that when challenges do arise you're going to be able to handle them it's mm, a great note to end on thank you i'm so glad we did this i know me too i could talk for hours oh i could too <laughs> i could and i would <laughs> I know, like, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Perennials Podcast. I'm Victoria Russell. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a review on iTunes. It really helps other people to find the show. You can follow along on Instagram at Perennials Podcast, and feel free to send me an email at perennialspodcast at gmail.com. The song you're hearing now is I Orbit a Moon by Paul Finn.